Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Mary Claire, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, first of all, I'd like to extend to the 33rd Gopher State Roundup the warmest regards from your general service office. And on a personal note, I'd like to say thanks to uh, Pat, who is the, uh, the chair of the Gopher State Board, uh, and uh, kept, kept me right in the loop on everything that I needed to be doing before coming here. Uh, Samira, who's been a wonderful host to my best friend Joan and myself, and also some little angels in the audience, Angie, Justine, and Colleen. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, my story is uh, is that of an alcoholic. You know, you're you're going to hear how how it was, how I ended up being an AA, and what life has been like since. And um, it was very interesting that this weekend's theme was 12 Steps to Freedom because when I thought about it, I, I said, wow, you know, the steps really have brought me freedom personally in, 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 in my life through sobriety. Um, I'm not just saying it because that's your your picture, your theme for, for this thing. It's really, really true. When you see how I lived before and how it is now, that's only possible through working the steps and on a daily basis. And for anybody who's a newcomer, um, it is for real one day at a time. That doesn't mean that every day I feel the compulsion to drink, but after over 16 years, I still have to say it's a miracle that I didn't have a drink yet today. It's a miracle that I didn't have a drink yesterday. Because for this woman to go for one day without drinking is impossible. Like those, those two things just don't go together. But it's been possible through Alcoholics Anonymous. So no matter what, keep coming back. Stick with it. We'll love you and, and just, just listen. Just, just be in the warmth of whatever meeting you go to and keep coming back because it can and does work. And that's, I just need you to know that above all. Um, I'm the oldest of nine children uh, in an Irish Catholic family. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and um, my mother is an alcoholic, um, and uh, my father also. He stopped drinking um, at, the, at the age of 17 due to some incident having to do with rage. We don't know exactly what it was. You know, it was never disclosed, but he lived, you know, has lived the rest of his life. He's still, they're both still alive as a rageaholic. It was a very, very um, cold, brutal, painful place to grow up in. Um, as the oldest um, child, I was the uh, caretaker for the younger kids. And now that we're all adults, I was just counting and... Uh, Seven out of the nine of us have uh, a problem with alcohol and or drugs. There are only two kids. Two of the girls um, can just, you know, they, 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 they could actually have a beer and take a few sips while they have a hamburger and, and leave the rest of it. <laughs> Go figure. I mean, I, um, and, that, and that's it. But the rest of us have had very, very severe struggles with it. Um, and uh, the rule we had growing up was always, you know, whenever we went to a family function or an event like a wedding, one of us was to get Daddy a ginger ale. We didn't know why. That was never explained, but that's what we did. Um, my mother's drinking was in secret, although we knew the um, there was like this piece of furniture called a dry sink, and, and the liquor underneath it was a door, and that's where the liquor cabinet was. And um, what I didn't know growing up was that some sisters who were, as many as 9 to 11 years younger than myself were uh, watering down mommy's vodka and gin and drinking at a very, very young age. They were, they were preteens, and they developed their problem back then. Um, my father was always very kind to alcoholics. You know, he would um, 
they, they used to get sober and work at this guy Sal's gas station down the road um, on Route 35 on the way to church, and they'd live upstairs, and, and Daddy um, would pick them up on the way to us going to Mass as a family. And my mother was a proper Bostonian, and she was, and meanwhile, Daddy was from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, he was the son of a longshoreman. So you had, like, two different cultural things going on here. And... Um, she, uh, he worked in insurance, and uh, she was a dean and a college professor. So she was highly incensed that these guys who smelled like gasoline were getting in the car, and Daddy was driving them to mass. And we used to love it sitting in the backseat because we'd wait for them to start to fight about it, you know, after the guy left the car. But the thing was about the uh, the recovering alcoholic was all, all we knew, us kids, was that he had some kind of problem, and Daddy was doing a good deed. And I used to sit, like, in the middle between my two brothers, and and I used to be looking at the back of the guy's neck, you know, and his collar would be frayed, and I would always, I was very, um, like, intuitive, and I would think like he was oozing earnestness. It was just coming right out of him. No matter what, he was trying his darndest at something. And he was really trying to be good, you know. And then he would leave, and the next new guy would come in and live with Sal and kind of go through the same process. And my mother would say after they left, Bill, I don't know why you have to do this. And he would just say, Mary, there but for the grace of God go I. Never understood it until many, many years later, of course. Um, growing up, um, as I said, it was uh, a pretty pretty violent household. Um, my mother never really wanted to have, you know, 12 pregnancies in 13 years, nine, nine surviving. Um, she believed in birth control. The church didn't. Uh, my father was a very, um, you know, toe the line Irish Catholic. And so there was no birth control practiced. And, uh, she drank more and ran away from home many times. And that was um, handled in the typical way that we did in our culture, which was you don't talk about it and you pretend it didn't happen. And um, Daddy would always buy extra sweets and ice cream when we'd do the grocery shopping and just say this will help the kids get over, you know, missing their mother. Um, when I uh, got to go away to college, there was never any dating or anything allowed. It was always very, very strict. And when I went away to college, the one piece of advice I got was um, now, you know, you're not going to be living here. You're going to be living down at the dorm. And the biggest thing is don't drink. You'll get pregnant. <laughs> I can be pretty naive even now, you know, <laughs> but I was an A student, you know, even in science, and I knew, I don't think that's how you got pregnant exactly, you know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the first, the first um, weekend that we, you know, were down on campus, we had a mixer, and, and I don't know if they do that anymore, but it's like, you know, you have like a big gym or an auditorium, and there's a band, and the boys from another college are on one side, and you girls are on the other, and those who are brave enough dance. And never having been with boys before, I went back to my dorm room and threw up. I was not going to have any part of this. And there was another crowd that was like boycotting the mixer. They were too cool for mixers. And they were going down to, the, to a fleet of bars that were at the foot of the hill of the boys' school that was our brother's school. And uh, I went along with them, and I went to the Pinewood, and that's where I had my first drink. And um, they've turned it into a Dunkin' Donuts now. Can you believe that? I, I really, I, I know I'm in the program, but that bugs me. The Pinewood's a Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know why. But I had my first drink. They said, what, what, you know, what do you want to have? I didn't really know, and I heard somebody say Black Russian. So I said, okay, I'll have a black Russian. And I loved it. Woo! It was like liquid licorice going down. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter that I was scared of the boys. It didn't matter that I didn't know how to dance. Nothing mattered. I just wanted another black Russian. And I could talk to anybody, and I had such fun. And I blacked out, and I never got back to campus. And we had curfews back then. So... That was that meant I was in trouble, so you had to go to student court, and that was um, a thing where 
the bad girls got sent. And um, I was campused, which is kind of like sticking your kid in the corner or sending them to their room for a while. And I wasn't allowed to leave campus then for a couple of weeks. Um, and the worst part was that the other girls shunned me because I was one of the bad girls that got sent to court. And my mother was mortified because she was a professor at the boys' school. And to my knowledge, we just didn't even tell Daddy that the whole thing happened. Um, but as soon as I was done being campused, I was back down at the Pinewood. And I was having my black Russians and getting campused again. And, I mean, it was this cycle, and that's how my, senior, my freshman year went. And by the end of it, if you added up my grades, you couldn't get a passing grade. <laughs> And I was kindly invited by the Sisters of Charity of New York not to return to their college the next semester. So um, there I was now, you know, at home, back to no social life, no drinking, of course, you know. I, I never thought it never crossed my mind to go into my mom's booze. And um, I determined that I was going to, you know, do, do my curriculum in three years now because I'm real stubborn and I was going to graduate on time. So my um, my parents had me go to a day college that was run by the nuns I'd had in grade school and high school. And uh, it was a small girls Catholic college. It was, it, was, it was fine, you know, and I was able, they did a trimester thing. So I was able to do my college, you know, in the three years and graduate on time. Um, the summer before my senior year started, though, I just knew everything was so bad at home that um, actually the feeling that I had at the time was, man, if you don't get out now, you're never going to get out. I mean, like, you're never going to get out of here. And so I left home. And I went down. I lived on campus. I worked a couple of jobs. And, of course, I started drinking again. And back then we used to have beer blasts. And um, we had this – the place has since built a law school on this gorgeous front lawn. But it was this beautiful green lawn that when it rained, the grass was smooth as glass. And we'd get really drunk on the beer and just like have these races and slide across the grass and the mud, you know. It was fun drinking. It was just fun drinking, you know. And um, again, it was a Catholic woman's college. And it, the, the, the back of the campus kind of made a, a drop like off this podium. And then down below was a major highway. I don't know, I think it's called 287 or something. Anyway, and, and up here, looking out over the highway, is a beautiful statue of Our Lady, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she was in what we call the miraculous metal pose. You know, she's got like the long veil on and, you know, her hands out like this. So um, the thing I was most famous for was at Christmas time, scaling the statue and hanging a sign saying, It's a boy! <laughs> The nuns were not pleased, you know, but, but that's the way drinking was. It was just fun. Um, and after graduation, um, I worked in a child care agency for delinquent teenagers, and I had a four-day week. You worked like long hours, you know, for four days, and then you could have three days off straight, which was really cool, because then our apartment became party central. And all of the other child care workers and social workers could, you know, come and party. And that's what we did. And um, as time wore on, though, I realized that my friends were, um, a lot of them were getting their master's degree. They were, they were um, getting married. One of the girls actually left the apartment to get married and moved to Jersey. And, um, I, you know, I just got the sense of, oh, boy, you know, like you're like, you're turning 22, 23. And what are you doing besides working and drinking and having a good time, but you're not really moving your life on, you know, in any meaningful way? And um, I was very taken by the, uh, the sisters who ran this uh, home for delinquent teenagers. They were Franciscans, and um, I'd been born on the Feast of St. Clair, and I always loved St. Clair. And I had a particular affection for St. Francis because um, he was behind the peace movement, and he loved all of nature, and um, he he had a great um, kind of, you know, let me do unto others, let, let me help others 
rather than be helped. Um, let me love others rather than be loved kind of mentality. And that really appealed to me. And I also always thought that he was St. Clair's secret boyfriend. So <laughs> that made for a really well-rounded saint, in my opinion, back then. And uh, so, you know, after working for them for about a year and a half, I joined that order. And for the next 10 years to the day, I was Sister Mary Claire. And they had me, um, you know, working in child care. One of the big reasons I entered was um, also because I wanted to stay in that particular ministry, working in child care not teaching. And of course, they put me into teaching right away. So um, I, I call those years the years of my controlled drinking, because we really didn't do a lot of drinking at the convent, you know, as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to what we heard about the rectories that wasn't happening in the convent. But when we had special, special feast days where we celebrated um, you know, mass and would really work on a liturgy, and um, uh, that that was a big deal. And afterwards, we would have a nice dinner and a cocktail hour. And I'd always have too much to drink, and um, and it, it went for you know that special birthday parties or yeah, jubilee celebrations, anything like that. I was like, when I wasn't drinking, I'm obviously in a controlled mode. I'm not drinking, but when I did. Whew, right back to the Pinewood days, you know, totally out of it. And, you know, when you live in, in religious community, your life in common is very important. Um, the quality of your life in common is very important. And all I can compare it to is our life in our individual AA groups. You know, it's, it's important that we get along well and, and, and work toward that primary purpose. And um, nobody ever really called me on it. I only heard... Um, two older sisters, you know, one saying to the other, don't worry, she's Irish. <laughs> like, that was, that was the excuse and the reason and whatever to go along with it, you know. Um, I, I did different jobs, actually. I didn't always stay in teaching. I, uh, I went to the West Coast. And, you know, as I took these other jobs and was more independent, my drinking got more active. And... Um, and there were some signs that I only looked back on. They were like billboards going by, but I sure didn't see them as, as they went by. And um, I remember, for instance, being in California and um, attending a big, well, it was a small dinner preceding a, a major reception that uh, the cardinal in one of the places out there was having. And there were going to be some very important women out there that I really wanted to meet. Uh, some political figures, some social action figures, you know, social justice figures. Did I just say social action? Well, social justice. I think I'm thinking X-Men just got released. Um, <laughs> so um, I was very eager, you know, to meet them. But first we had this private, elegant dinner at this lady's house. And the only problem was she had a cocktail hour beforehand. You could have whatever you wanted. And at that point, my drink of choice was, black, was uh, Southern Comfort Manhattan's. So somebody said, all right. Oh, you're with me. All right. And um, so I had Southern Comfort Manhattans, plural. Um, and all I remember about the dinner was her wait staff was, you know, like bringing plates and putting them down, and then the plate would be gone, and another one would be there. And, you know, and I remember just trying to focus on this little tiny salt and pepper in front of my place because... The plates going by were making me dizzy. They were going by so fast. And then it was time to go to this reception, and um, I was like, Louise, I, I, ooh. And the weirdest thing that happened was my eyeballs kept rolling back in my head. That had never happened before, and it seemed like my knees no longer worked. And so Louise is, is like, you know, kind of holding me up, and we're trying to get into this reception, and the Secret Service would not let us in. And Louise said, she just had eye surgery. Could you please make an exception? I must have reeked of the stuff, you know. And they were like, no, sorry, no. So I, I missed that. And I, I just, and I didn't, that didn't even make me say, hey, Mary Claire, do you think you got a problem? You know, no, not at all. It just didn't. Um, I was living in California. Um, I had done some media on 
screen work for NBC, and uh, that one thing led to another, and I ended up with a job in Los Angeles at um, Center for Communications Ministry. Uh, while I was with uh, doing the things on NBC, I had worked with Mary Knoll and um, doing promotion for a film that we actually made the top five in the documentary category that year for the Academy Awards. And um, so there was a lot of partying that went on with that, and of course I overdid it. And when I came to live in, San, in uh, Santa Monica with these Sisters of Charity, not the ones who threw me out of college, but a different order, um, they were great ladies. They were great ladies. They were from Billings, Montana, originally. And um, But I... I adopted this mantra, Southern comfort is my comfort. <laughs> Seriously. And I had my own little car for getting to work, and I would, I was out of the habit by then, and um, could just walk in, buy my booze, and come to, come to my room, make a cocktail, make prayers, dinner, watch the news, because that's what you did. You all watched the news together, then go back to my room and drink myself into oblivion. Did I think anything was wrong with that? No. Because all my family and everybody I love is on the East Coast. I need comfort. What's the mantra? Southern comfort is my comfort. So that was fine. Um, but it, it, it just, you know, when I look back on it, that's where I started drinking alone, and that wasn't a good thing. Um, I was very homesick. I got recruited by the National Bishops' Conference, and I came back to work in their Department of Communications in New York. And again, drinking took another plunge uh, forward. And um, I, although working for the bishops, we did not have any uh, bishops on staff. I want to make that clear. This was lay people drinking. And um, one dear friend, uh, I mean, he was my friend, not just because of the alcohol, but, but he was a dear friend. And he had a desk with what looked like file drawers, but really it was a door. And when you opened up the door, he kept bottles of scotch in there. And at 5 o'clock, my phone would light, and I knew it would be this friend saying, come on down, it's 5 o'clock, you can drink. Sure enough, you know, the belt light would go on. I'd say, Henry, I'll be right down. And he'd have the scotch ready, and then we'd go into the screening room. Because what his job was was to look at television shows and new movies that were coming out, you know, by Paramount and anybody who's producing movies, and uh, give them a rating. So we used to watch them together. As we drank our scotch, and for any of you uh, old-time good Catholics in the audience, we were your legion of decency. <laughs> so, um, and while I was working for them, um, I left the convent. I stayed working for them, um, but I stayed like 10 years to the day. I figured, you know, round it out, make it, make it even, you know. And um, what used to happen was, you know, after I'd be done drinking with, with Henry and I hadn't really had lunch or anything, I would get on the wrong express bus home back up to the Bronx. Now, that's fairly impossible to do because, you know, what a bus looks like, okay? And the front of You don't? Oh, well, they're these big vehicles, okay, that carry about 60 people. And the front of them are clearly marked where they're going. And everybody knows, like, you're... you're place where you're going is 3X Sedgwick, okay? That's my bus. That's the bus I had to get. I don't get on the 4. I don't get on the, the 6. I get on the 3X. That's it. And they all have big, I mean, it's got to be this big, the sign, right? What I was doing was I was always getting on the wrong bus. They stopped, like, in a row nearby. I was getting on the wrong bus late at night, landing someplace I didn't belong. It could be a different borough. It could be different part of Yonkers. It could be a very dangerous uh, neighborhood. Um, it, it was nowhere near home, I'll give you that much. And so what I would do is get on the phone and call one of the nuns, who was my best friend Joni, who was the guest here this weekend, and just say, Joni, I got on the wrong bus. And she, of course, would have been asleep because she was working a very early shift as a cancer care technician. And she'd say, how did you do that? I said, I don't know. Where are you? I don't know. Well, what does it look like around you? Dark. <laughs> you know, well, do you see any stores, any signs? Is there anything you can tell me? You know, do you know at all where you are? You know, and I would try to say something. And God bless her, you know, she'd put her raincoat on over her nightie and get in the car and, and come get me and drop me off at my apartment. Didn't ask a lot of questions. And... Uh, 
she was pretty much my savior. After a while, she started um, stopping by the house to see if I had food, if I fed the dog, you know, had the bills been paid, any of that stuff, because my my life gradually. Over oh, the next 10 years, it just became all about the alcohol. It became all about the alcohol. And, and in that way, all about living your life as a responsible woman just went down the tubes. Um, I worked for, you know, different operations. I kept getting recruited. My, my, I never drank on the job. I, um, I once went out for lunch and two bottles of wine later, caught a train home and I realized you can't drink during the work day. So I never drank after that during a work day. Um, but I lived for when the train would be leaving Grand Central Station because now I was at a job where I could take the train home and I needed to be there 10 minutes before the train left so I could get a couple of bottles of wine for the, from the bar cart to take on the train. And P.S. my ride home was like 11 to 17 minutes depending on, you know, so, and I had to have these little bottles of wine, had to have them till I got home. And then I would drink myself into oblivion, um, get up in the morning and the house looked like vandals had come in and ransacked it. I mean, it was, it would just be a mess. I don't know what meals I cooked or tried to cook. I typically would paint my fingers in different colors. Why? I don't know. I wasn't, I was too old to be into psychedelic stuff. Um, Neighbors said I walked my dog in my nighty. Not a pretty sight, you know. But, you know, things that were never in my character to do, I was doing. And, um, and then there were, there, there were incidents, you know, that, that happened. Like I, I remember, um, being with a crew of engineers. We, we did these seminars and we did a city a day. It was very rigorous. Started in Raleigh and then we'd go to Atlanta and Chicago and, and like that, you know, and I get the seminar running. They would give it that day while I flew to the next city, got the next one set up, you know, we'd meet for dinner and drinks, you know, that night. And when we hit San Francisco, um, I got a call that my parents had been in a terrible accident and, um, my dad broke, oh my gosh, it seems like every bone in his upper body. My mother had been impaled by a tree, lost her eye. Um, and again, and she was in a coma in a different medical center and I never wept and it wasn't because they were cruel or neglectful when I was a kid. It was just that I couldn't. And the guy said, we better get you for a drink, get you downstairs for a drink. And I was like, yeah. And that's what we did. And I drank them under the table. And I remember distinctly having the thought, I guess this is what they mean by a wooden leg, that you can just drink these guys under the table. And rather than being sorrowful or, um, you know, even sitting down and saying some prayers or something for my folks, I was more concerned about numbing it all. Just, just drink till it doesn't hurt. But you know what? I couldn't get drunk that night. I, I, I drank and drank and drank. The engineers kind of slithered, slithered away toward the elevator as they could, went upstairs. And, um, I took two for the road up to my room, packed and came back to the East Coast and did what I had to do as eldest daughter. Um, it just, I always remember that, and there's a direct contrast to how I live life now. Um, I had a boss named Fran in one of the places where I worked, and uh, she'd known me from the convent. And she came in one day, and she said, it was about mm, 2 o'clock, I guess, in the afternoon, and she said, hmm, I can tell we had a liquid lunch. Now, I hadn't, you know, so I just looked up without thinking and I said, Fran, I haven't even been out to lunch. I've been working on this project. And she just looked at me like she didn't know what to say. And she spun on her heel and she walked out the room. And I was like, why would she say that? And I went, holy cow. Oh my God. Despite shower, cologne, lotion, yada, yada, all the girl stuff. I smelled like booze, that sicky, yicky stuff when it's coming through your skin. That's what I smelled like. And that's what, of course, Fran picked up when she came in. And I thought, oh, my God, you've got a problem. Now you've got a problem. But the problem was, stop smelling that way. <laughs> like when I was on the buses coming home, when I got right or wrong bus, I would be throwing up on the bus. 
I was sure it was because they had fumes from the engine in the passenger cabin, and I was going to write them a letter. It wasn't because I drank too much. No, no, I knew there was a problem, but not me. It wasn't me. This was denial. And and how I ended up getting here was I um, had dinner with a priest friend who was working with adult children of alcoholics, and he um, talked a lot about his work that night. I wrote him a thank you note, and in the next morning I would always read my note because typically I was so drunk that you know my, my writing would scribble off the page. And um, I read this letter, and by that point I was having a drink before I went to work, a cure, because I, I just... I got to the point where I didn't feel good in the morning. Pepto-Bismol wasn't cutting it anymore. And um, I, I, it just the only thing that would work with was a cure, and I would have a cure. And I read the letter that I had written to, this, to John, this priest friend, and realized that, number one, I could read it. It wasn't just falling off the page. And number two, I didn't write to him about mommy and daddy's drinking or the effect of growing up in an alcoholic household. I wrote to them about my drinking. I wrote to him about my drinking. And when I read this letter, I was appalled. And I said, holy cow, you are an alcoholic. You are an alcoholic. And then, you know, two reactions. Weight lifts it off my shoulders. Okay. And then, of course, the next question we all face, now what do I do? So, um... I had been engaged at one point to a guy who became violent when he got drunk, so we didn't stay together, because I'm like, if you throw something or hit me once, it's over. That's it. Um, we're not going to change by walking down the aisle. I learned that in the convent by seeing too many marriages. And um, we went to see a counselor, and he gave us um, his business card, and he said to me, and if you ever want to look at your drinking, give me a call. And I just, at the time, I thought, oh, how sweet. And I, <laughs> and I put it in my jewelry box, you know. And I called Al-Anon. Um, he, he said for me to call Al-Anon about, you know, me and my fiancé. And um, I did, and they wanted me to go to meetings. They wanted me to go to meetings. He was the one with the problem, you know. Um, and, but, but I, and I didn't go to the meetings because I was rather incensed. But, but I did remember what they said to me. You didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. And I've, I've held that in my mind ever since. And that's been a real gift from Al-Anon. It's been very, very helpful in a lot of different ways. Um, and um, so I pulled this guy's card out of my jewelry box, and I called up to see if I could get to see him. And it turned out that in the intervening years, he had acquired way over 20 years of sobriety, but he died of cirrhosis of the liver. And that was a lesson to me that, you know, sometimes we do damage to ourselves that no matter what, if we get sober, it doesn't mean that we become all the well, all the way well physically. So um, then I said, well, what else can I do? And my best friend Joni, who was always rescuing me when I was doing my drinking, she had a brother I didn't know that well. Um, he lived in the village. He was her only sibling. Nice enough guy. I, I just had a sense of him that he's very honest, very direct. Um, he had done at least one stint on what we call the flight deck at Bellevue Hospital. And, um, and alcoholism was the problem. And the guy went to AA, and he got sober, and that's all I knew. But my sense was, you know, like, very logically, if I call up Dan and tell him, I think I have a problem, he's either going to tell me, get off it, come on, you're an amateur, or he's going to tell me something that's going to help me. So I, that's what I did. I called him up, and uh, he was first concerned. I wasn't in the habit of calling him, you know. Was his sister okay? I said, Joni's fine. I said, but I have a little problem. And he was a computer expert. And he says, is it with your system? And I said, not the system you're thinking of. <laughs> um, I said, it's my system. I said, I can't stop drinking. He said, what do you mean? I said, I mean, I can't stop drinking. I drink every day. I drink all that I can. Once I start, I can't stop. You know, whatever way you want to do it, I can't stop drinking. He said, okay, can you hold on until right after work and come down to my apartment? I said, yeah, sure. So I went down to his apartment in the village, and uh, he served me decaf coffee. 
this was cocktail hour time, you know? So we had decaf coffee, and instead of talking to him about my problems with booze, I started, you know, griping and moaning and groaning about life, you know? Can't find a boyfriend, and I'm not getting paid enough, and I can't pay my bills, and, you know, moan and groaning. And, and he sat back there. He was a large fellow, you know, and he kind of sat back there in his chair, and he looked at me kind of smugly at one point, I thought. And so that really ticked me off. I mean, now, now, you're giving me decaf coffee and you're not taking me seriously. So this alcoholic is not happy camper. And I actually raised my voice, which again is not really in character for me. And I, I said to him, what the blank's the matter with you? I can't stop drinking and my life is totally screwed up. And he said, fantastic. You just took, you know, you just took the first step. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? And he said, can I get you some more coffee? No, thank you. And he said, all right, I want you to sit back and listen. And he told me his AA story. And the particulars of it were, 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 were different, you know. This was a very uh, out guy in the village and single and um, just different lifestyle than, than me, different life, different era. He was uh, a bit older than myself. But I identified like a million thousand percent with his story. I drank the way he drank. I felt the way he felt. I drank the way he drank. It was, it was, it was amazing. And I just, I, I felt such love for him. It was like, oh my God, you finally come home. And, um, he said, so maybe you have a drinking problem. And I'm thinking, oh geez, I'm like you, I, I must. I said, but what do we do? And he said, well, I'm in AA and what we do is we go to meetings. I said, okay, just, we're just, uh, I was ready, willing and able, you know, tell me where to go. Um, and so he, he found out meetings that were near where I worked, uh, Mustard Seed and Grand Central were the names of the two. And he told me about meetings 101, which was great. He said, you know, you walk in, there'll be chairs, you sit down. There might be a smoking section and a non-smoking. If you don't smoke, which I don't think you do, do you? No? Okay. Then you sit over in the other section. You don't have to open your mouth. You don't have to say who you are. You don't have to say a darn thing. You go in, you sit down. It'll go for exactly one hour. They'll all get up, they might say a prayer, and then you just walk away. If you should want to, when they say are there any newcomers, you can raise your hands and identify yourself. If you do, know that all the women will come running up to you and give you phone numbers. <laughs> he said, that's normal. <laughs> that's how we help each other. Then, then they'll help you. And it's okay to take their numbers and give you give them yours. If guys come up, we have a name for that, and that's not nice. And, and so don't take any numbers from guys. So, I mean, he gave me just all these cues, you know, and he kept saying, you know, it's a day at a time, just a day at a time, a day at a time, one step at a time. And I left his apartment with hope in my heart. I had been suicidal. I was standing on the edge of railroad tracks going to work at the spot where danger 600 volts, the D had won off and it said anger, 600 volts. That was my spot. And that was my spot because I was totally enraged, enraged that I had lived to see another day. Because when I woke up, I realized I drank myself into oblivion. And I swore I wouldn't do it today. But I did it again and again and again for days and weeks and months and years. And so when I left his apartment, I had some hope. And I remember walking down those stairs, those little teeny tiny tiles on the stairs, and uh, looking at, just looking at the tiles and going step by step, a day at a time, step by step, a day at a time, step by step, a day at a time. And that's the way I walked. I walked all the way up to Grand Central and stationing and then went home and I went to my first meeting and it was at the mustard seed and um, I decided I was going to be brave and raise my hand and the guys ran up first. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was younger and cuter then, and it scared the heck out of me, you know. So I ran out of that meeting, and I called up Dan. I was crying, and he says, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. A lot of things happen in AA. Don't worry about it. Go to that other meeting, Grand Central. And that's my home group to this day. And in Grand Central, you had to walk up a big flight of stairs, you know. So uh, I walked up the stairs, and this guy John was, was up there. Hey, how are you? Don't touch me. <laughs> ah, you're new, aren't you? How do you know? <laughs> they know, they know. And um, and I and I I did say, you know, I was new when I was an alcoholic. And the women came up first, thanks be to God, you know, and gave me their numbers. And um, I got a sponsor and began working the steps and. And, you know, it, it made a huge change in my life. Um, the compulsion to, to drink didn't go away for a while. There were a lot of struggles. Um, but I did remain sober from the day I, I walked in till now. And, um, and it's changed my life remarkably. You know, it's, um, it's, it's changed my life remarkably. I, um, I have situations in life that I, I've learned to show up for, you know, and not drink over. Um, my mother, the alcoholic, uh, is dying right now. She's in a nursing home. She'll be 81 on Monday. And uh, we're in the last, you know, probably weeks, maybe a month or two of her life. Um, and it was very special to see yellow flowers up here because that's her favorite color. And... Um, I can go there, and um, because she's in the nursing home, she hasn't been able to have alcohol, and so she's sober, if you want. I mean, she's she doesn't have booze in her, and I'm the eldest, and she talks to me about all the serious things. She talks to me about dying. She talks to me about living. She talks to me about how much she loved us and loves me and couldn't say it, you know, and I'm only able to show up. I'm only able not to have drunk myself under some table, you know, found that wooden leg again because I have this program. Um, on September 11th, I had gotten a job and I was working at a small foundation in downtown Manhattan, just two blocks over from the World Trade Center. I actually was in the Trade Center that morning buying the shoes that I'm wearing right now, actually. And... Um, when we first heard the first thing, we, 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 I, I thought, okay, some, some, some guy my age had a heart attack and, you know, hit, hit the building and let's say, you know, a couple of prayers and like that. We didn't realize the enormity of it. Um, as many who were right, right there didn't. The rest of the world seemed to know much more than we did. And, um, the president and someone else and I hung on. I, I dismissed staff. I was director of administration. I sent the staff home because our subway and mass transit system can grind to a halt at any kind of problem, you know. And um, they, um, we were waiting for Josh because he had been in the Kansas City uh, bombings a few years ago. He was a young kid, very sensitive, and I didn't want him to walk into some other disaster and find nobody in the office. So we waited for Josh. And uh, by the time it was, by the time he got there, the building had shook, and I think they said it was a 2.5 on the Richter scale, and that was the first tower coming down. And uh, when we came outside, uh, we looked up, and um, you know, I, uh, I, I've nicknamed my higher power mystery because I don't understand the timings and the workings of my higher power. Um, we saw things, we saw people, we saw things nobody should ever have to see in this world that day. And um, when we got downstairs, there was only one tower left, and uh, it was gray. There was this gray smoke. Uh, it wasn't smoke, it was dust. And all we could do was link arms, because you could just see you know, a few feet in front of you. And um, we linked arms, and we walked north near the um, East River, because it was like anybody who was in Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, it was something about smoke and water, so we just figured, I don't know, be near the water, so we stayed by the East River, and then we ended up on Broadway, and when we were in Chinatown, somebody screamed, and we turned around, and the second tower had fallen. 
actually was imploding that we saw. And, um, you know, it wasn't like the Godzilla movies where people are screaming and racing. We were this filthy mass of silent gray people trudging north, just holding arms and trudging north. And any time somebody started to cry, somebody would go, shh. Because if one of us lost it, everybody would. It was like right up to here. And um, I met the old timer. I bought the new shoes to go to a nice lunch with this old timer, Irving from Grand Central. And um, I got to his apartment, and um, he let us wash up and try to get a call into home. And before I left the office, I was able to call Joni and you know, thank her for being my best friend and, you know, just tell her to tell my family I'll be trying to get home. I called my sponsor and I said, thank you for saving my life. I don't think I'm going to make it. And, um, you know, I walked back past the office of my Reiki master and my therapist and I said, thanks for helping me keep my life together. Um, and Irving and I went to a meeting. So we did. We went to a meeting after we washed up. And, um, and it was in a church basement, and what came back was all the World War II movies where people went for um, shelter, you know, in basements with the pipes overhead. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, dear God, they're going to bomb the city, and we're all going to die. Because by now, planes were flying cover, which means like some kind of a pattern, so that we'd be protected. We didn't know that. We just heard planes and thought the worst. And as I sat there and thought this, I said, yeah, but you know what? You're in the litter of puppies right where you belong. And that's how I feel about AA meetings, no matter where I go. You're in the litter of puppies where you belong. And if you're going to go here, what better place? And that's the truth. And I, I tell you that not for effect, but for the, because it's the truth. And um, we left the meeting and walked, you know, I walked up, went back with the crowd of walking people. And uh, one of the things that, that was there was, and this was what made it be so different, was the bars were, were overfilled to capacity. People were out on the streets with their drinks. The bars were so full. Every single bar, every single bar was full in front of the churches and synagogues. They had ta waters with ta uh, table tables with water on it in case we needed, you know, we needed to drink water. And but the bars were filled to capacity, and I had no urge to go in. And I thought to myself, "Holy cow, what a difference between, you know, San Francisco and getting the word about mommy and daddy." and just drinking myself into oblivion, and here I can go to an AA meeting and walk past the bars, you know? And, you know, life, life, life is life after sobriety, and you are where you are for a reason, and you show up, and, and sometimes God opens some painful but beautiful doors, you know, to make, for making amends. And uh, when I, I was working at the office a Sunday night about two years ago and uh, got a call that uh, Dan, who had walked me into AA and escorted me through the years, had been found dead. And he was dead for several days, and the police were there. And Joni and I went down, and uh, they left a young cop there, and his name was Lynch, of all things. It's my last name. And um, the amends that I could make to Joan was to stand next to her, not drink over this. This was the guy who got me sober. But don't drink over it. Don't cry over it. Stand next to her. You know, the details have to be attended to. You've got to go to the medical examiners, ID the body, visit the coroner, you know, do all these things. Whatever I could do to help her, I did. And it was a way... The only way I knew of making amends and saying, thank you, thank you. You kept my life together when it was falling apart. And it wasn't your problem to do that, but you did it. You did it, and I owe you big time, sister. I owe you big time. And, and that, that's a lesson. You know, it's like life has opened the door now with my mother. She's able to talk to me, and she's got 
brother, a brother who walked out of the woodwork. We haven't seen him in 28 years. And he says, he called me up and said, I understand you're working at our headquarters. And I said, uh, I remember the company he worked with. And I said, no, I work for AA World Services. And he said, yeah, our headquarters. <laughs> I said, um, do you know what AA is? Because <laughs> he was like the most drunk uncle I had, you know? <laughs> and he said, I'll be sober 25 years in December. You know, and and so there are there are these blessings. It's a blessing. It's a blessing that I can put my arm around my mother and be there for her and, and talk to her, you know? It's a blessing. It's a blessing to be here. There are friends I just haven't met yet, you know, who are here. And um, so, I mean, I hope I've described how life can be pretty rough when you're out there drinking, you know, in so many ways. And yet now in sobriety, I've got the tools, you know, of the steps. I, I look at what I'm, what I'm powerless over. Say I can't do it, yet I got a higher power who can, who's taught me how to make amends, who's taught me how to say I'm sorry as soon as I realize I messed up on somebody. And, and I, and I learned how to meditate. I didn't learn that in the convent. I learned how to pray, but I didn't learn how to meditate. I can meditate now, and I can, to the best of my ability, practice these principles in all my affairs. And for this woman, that has been total freedom, total freedom. And I want to leave you with, um, as I said to you earlier, my, my concept of a higher power has been encompassed in the word mystery because the timings of how things happen and the way it goes, I never quite get, and it is a mystery to me. And there's a song from a mass called the Nisagaya, the Earth Mass, and I don't have the gift of song as our speaker last night, so I won't be singing it for you. <laughs> but I'll, Because what I do is I say this first to myself um, a couple of times during the day. You know, I always start off saying thanks for, for my sobriety, at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day saying, God, please keep me sober today. But then during the day, this is what keeps me um, going so that I can see my higher power's hand and get out of the way and be of service. Oh, mystery, you are alive. I feel you all around. You're the fire in my heart. You are the holy sound. You are all of life. And it is to you that I sing. Grant that I may see you always in everything. Thank you for my sobriety. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.